One Week Season. is going on one week season fam welcome to the week nine edition of the ows angles podcast i am your host i am your guest i am jm to win week nine throw this baby on 1.5 x speed and let's get started we have a fun slate to dive into this week kind of a unique setup for me in that i have a very narrow focus this week. One of the things that's been interesting for me is I've talked in the past, I talked last year actually about how one of the things that I would have liked to have done that I was wanting to do is get back to what I'm best at in DFS play. So over the last several years, I kind of branched out into mini multi-entry play and even dabbled a little bit in not true mass multi-entry, but getting up to 25, 30, sometimes 35 rosters. And then again, that stretch of probably a full year and a half where I was focused on nine to 14, occasionally 19 rosters and kind of walking through my strategy breakdown of how I was building those player pools, how I was putting together those rosters, and some of the angles that we could take in order to maximize our chances at first place in tournaments where other people are building 150 entries. That was actually a lot of fun doing that. It was really cool in 2019 where we kind of took the wildcat and I spent seven weeks or whatever it was breaking down the process that I was putting together in an effort to get first place in the wildcat, which culminated in that first place wildcat finish. So it was kind of cool to see that beginning to end process. But part of the reason that I was so focused on building extra rosters, as I've talked about, is because when I was the only voice providing content on one week season, I thought that it was important for me to hit on a lot more plays because no matter how much I say, hey, the player grid, for example, is my player pool, if I'm the only person providing content for the site and I'm then laying out this very narrow player pool, it can seem to subscribers like, oh, these are the only good plays or these are the plays that I should be going to. And so in order to combat that, I made sure to basically list kind of all the sharp plays in the player grid every week. But one of the things that I kind of built my DFS brand on was my unique approach to DFS, which was building typically one lineup, occasionally two or three lineups, and having a very narrow player pool that was generated through my bubble building process. So getting all of these new voices onto the site, obviously we added Xandamere in 2019, we added Hilo and Sonic last year, but adding Poppy, adding Majestic, adding Larejo, adding Mike, adding all the stuff that's in the scroll this year, it's given me more freedom to start shifting back to the type of play that A, I enjoy the most, and B, I'm most equipped to succeed in, which is single entry play. So when I say single entry play, that doesn't always mean one roster in play. It used to mean, basically it used to mean for me, one roster, 
on which 90 to 95% of my money was placed. And then I might have eight to 10 other rosters that were in very lower dollar contest or lower dollars compared to the amount of money that was on that one roster. Uh, this year, the weeks, I think there's been a couple of weeks that I've done this now, and this will be a third week that I'll be doing this by single entry. I basically mean one roster in the $1,500 game changer, which is a single entry tournament. And then that roster plus maybe one or two other rosters in some three max contests. And what what that's enabled me to do is focus my attention a lot more on finding my personal path to first place and what I feel is the sharpest path to first place if I'm only building one or two rosters. What's interesting why I talk through all of that right now is be it, what's interesting is that this week's slate kind of lines up in such a way that my focus is naturally very narrowed. So as you'll see in the player grid or may already have seen if you've gone to the player grid first, I have a pretty broad range of wide receivers, but they're from a handful of different teams. So there might be two or three wide receivers that I'm picking and choosing from on the Bills and two wide receivers that I'm choosing from on the Bengals and a couple of pass catchers I'm choosing from on the Broncos or Cowboys or whatever it might be. But everything's kind of narrowed down to those teams. And then my running back pool is very narrow this week and and quarterback same as the wide receivers. It's basically very focused on these very specific passing Attacks. So we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. We will get to this week's bottom up build, which is a bottom up build that I really like and that's that's interesting to dive into from a strategy discussion standpoint. Some stuff that we can hit on that that applies in a more macro sense to things that we can be doing with DFS roster construction. Before we get to that, however, we want to hit on this week's mission. And for those of you who missed it, last week's mission was sign up for Inner Circle. We have a rest of season discount for you that's 39 bucks for the rest of the season if you are in OWS annual. You can find that mission on the missions page uh, in the main menu on one week season. And hopefully you took advantage last week of the fact that we made Inner Circle free for one week. So last Saturday was the Xandamere and Hilo Saturday Strategy Podcast, the Oracle in last week's scroll. And then also, if you missed it, I would highly recommend going back and listening to this, was the Tuesday Inner Circle segment. So the idea behind Inner Circle is that DFS coaching, one-on-one DFS coaching is expensive. Most DFS coaches who are successful at DFS charge 100 to 125 bucks an hour for coaching. And as I said at the start of the season, if, if you and I were sitting down and doing coaching together, we would basically use half of our time to talk about DFS fundamentals, DFS theory, DFS strategy. And then we would use the other half of the time closer to roster lock for the sport that we would be focused on. And we would be kind of not building rosters together, but you would be building rosters and I would be asking questions, answering questions, kind of helping you develop your thought process of what it looks like to build a roster. So we set up inner circle with that same structure, right? The Tuesday segment with me is more focused on big picture DFS theory, strategy, training, etc. The Saturday session with Xanamir and Hilo is more focused on the strategy, not the picks, but the strategy for that week's slate. So this Tuesday was a really cool session. Again, it's free. You can find it on the one week season podcast feed. 
if you're not in Inner Circle. You can find it there. Uh, it'll be there permanently, right? And because we're focused on DFS theory, macro stuff, it's evergreen. That means you could listen to it three weeks from now, a month from now, three months from now, and it would still hold value. So if you don't have time to listen to it this weekend before kickoff, bookmark it, listen to it. So what we did was Matthew Petrich, who is a longtime OWS subscriber, Inner Circle member, he won $250,000 in week eight. That's a quarter of a million dollars for those of you counting at home. He did it playing single entry and three entry max. He built three rosters on the weekend and finished first and second place in the power sweep. First place, and I believe it was the double spy. And Matthew was able to kind of sit down with me on Inner Circle and we talked through his roster and talked through the three elements that he kept in mind as he was building, which is play for first place, build a roster that can score 200 plus points and build fearlessly, play DFS fearlessly. And one of the things that I said in at the top of that segment was, there are two ways to learn DFS. One is through trial and error, which can be extremely expensive. And the other is to learn from people who have already learned this themselves, either through trial and error or by lots of time in the industry, lots of conversations with other people. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had online and in person with really good DFS players, picking their brains, talking DFS theory, trying to learn new things from them. And just that accumulation of knowledge over time is so valuable. And so being able to gain that in a more condensed form, a less expensive form, is incredibly valuable. So $125 an hour for one-on-one -on -one coaching, $39 bucks to add Inner Circle to your OWS annual package for the rest of the season. Or if you want to pick up like a good $125 worth of knowledge and information, check out that Tuesday podcast. Again, it's on the one week season podcast feed. It's the Inner Circle podcast that's on there. Check that out and you will basically be picking up like a full segment's worth of training knowledge information that can help you improve your DFS play. That's important to keep in mind, but all of that was said primarily to remind you that mission number two is still fully in play. Mission number one, which is signing up for Underdog Fantasy, is still fully in play. Uh, again, Underdog Fantasy, 100% deposit match up to 100 bucks. So you want to play with you know 50 bucks, you can deposit $25 and actually play with $50. So it's kind of super plus EV because you double your money right away. Um, sign up with promo code OWS there. But all that information is on the missions page, as is the OWS avatar and the information for mission number three. So uh, again, we have these missions set up in such a way that they help OWS. Obviously, playing with the OWS avatar helps OWS more than it helps you. But also, a lot of these missions are set up so that they help you as well. So that's what the Inner Circle one is set up for. That's what the Underdog is set up for. And we'll have another really cool one next week that actually very specifically helps you out. So check out the OWS missions page. With that, let's roll back over to week nine. And I wanted to I want to start this discussion talking about the teams that are kind of at the top from a standpoint of what are the signals that we can look at, right? We talk about not getting too blinded by the signals because we want to understand that there is nuance in every spot. And the more that we can think about things on our own and come to conclusions on our own, the more we can outmaneuver the field 
without thinking strategy first. In other words, the more we can find plays that we really like and that we're putting onto our rosters because we like them, and then we can kind of come out of that bubble and say, oh, wow, this guy's going overlooked or this guy's going overlooked. I don't have to think about strategy beyond this. But the signals, including what Vegas is telling us about games, are also important. They're worthwhile. The reason why people pay attention to them is because in a macro sense, teams with high implied team totals are likelier to score points. Teams with high implied team totals are likelier to blow past those team totals and put up a bunch of points, the type of score that can win you a tournament by stacking an entire offense. So from a signals standpoint... There are four teams at the top of this slate. One of those teams, and actually let me say this, one of the ways we should think about these signals is touchdown share, right? How many touchdowns is this team going to score? How many of those touchdowns can we capture on a roster? So a team that's projected to score four plus touchdowns, but they spread spread the ball around to like eight or nine different guys, well, that's not nearly as valuable as a team that's projected to score four touchdowns and basically relies on three or four guys. That that elevates our chances of rostering two of those three or four guys and potentially getting three or four of those touchdowns on our rosters at once. As we know, as we talked about in that Tuesday Inner Circle segment, as I mentioned from time to time, upside comes from volume, big plays, and touchdowns. And we really want to make sure that we nail the touchdown side. If you've ever had one of those weekends, which we all have, where a bunch of your players get catches and yards and none of them score touchdowns, you know how frustrating that can be because you really have no shot at a first place finish when that happens. On the flip side, you can also be frustrated when you see somebody who's heavily owned and has 15 carries for 60 yards and two catches for 20 yards, but they end up scoring two touchdowns or three touchdowns to, quote, bail everybody out. Touchdowns are extremely important, six points at once. And while touchdowns themselves are unpredictable on individual players, one of the best ways we can look to capture touchdowns is by identifying teams that are likely to score touchdowns. So this week, the top Vegas implied team total on the slate is the Bills going against the Jaguars. One of the things that we like about this Bills offense is that they are not an offense that is going to either A, take their foot off the gas in the third quarter and just coast to a win, or B, turn the ball over to the backfield and just start running the ball for two full quarters of football. This Bills team is going to continue passing into the fourth quarter. At some point in the fourth quarter, if they have a huge lead, they're going to take their foot off the gas. But by that point, they've already accumulated the points that you need them to accumulate. They've already gotten their quote, on the way up, as Poppy would say. So that creates one of the cool elements about this Bills offense when they're in a potential blowout spot, blowout victory, is that we can still we don't have to worry about, okay, can the Jaguars keep this game close? Can they force the Bills to keep passing deep into the game? Because the Bills are a team that's going to keep passing deep into the game more often than not, regardless of what's going on. So Bills at 31.5 makes Josh Allen an excellent play. Uh, Dawson Knox is going to be out again, so that concentrates the targets down to Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders, Stephon Diggs. It gets Gabriel Davis on the field a little bit more and gives us four guys that we can think about pairing Josh Allen with. If we look at this slate from a macro sense, Josh Allen is the player who is likeliest to top the slate in scoring. 
That doesn't mean he's going to do that every time if we played out this slate over and over and over again, but it means that he would get there more often than any other player on this slate. So Josh Allen, this Bills passing attack, very much worth keeping in mind. And also worth keeping in mind is you don't have to bring back a player on the other side of this game. Remember, we talk about not blindly correlating. It's one of the mistakes that we see people make is they think, oh, okay, well, correlation's good. So I now have Josh Allen. That means that I need to bring it back with a Jaguars piece. Well, the bet that you're making with Josh Allen isn't that this game remains competitive. You're just making a bet that the Bills put up a lot of points. Recognizing that the way this Bills offense is run, they can put up big DFS scores, whether the Jags are keeping up with them or not. In other words, a Jaguars bet is a totally independent bet of a Bills bet. You don't need the Jags to do well in this spot for the Bills to do well. And so that's basically something that you, you should take in isolation and say, do I want to bet on the Jags in this spot? Not, not to say that you can't or that you shouldn't, but it doesn't have to be part of a Bills bet. The next team is the Cowboys. Cowboys going against the Broncos at home with a Vegas implied team total of 29.5. Michael Gallup is still going to be out in this spot. It actually looks like Blake Jarwin could end up missing. CeeDee Lamb is questionable. So that kind of condenses this distribution of targets on the Cowboys as well. Uh, The Cowboys are a team that will spread the ball out. It's rare. It's actually pretty interesting to look back through Amari Cooper's game logs because he has way more games of 12, 14, 15 points over the last year and a half than most people probably realize because he also comes out with these games of 30 points or 35 points or 40 points or whatever it might end up being. Same thing with CeeDee Lamb. CeeDee Lamb is typically going to be 13, 15, 17 points. He's been priced up because he had that, I believe it was a 38-point game. And then now that he's priced up, that creates that pricing psychology where people see his price tag up there and they assume that he must be worth that much. So if CeeDee Lamb plays, he's actually pretty fundamentally overpriced for his typical range of production. Furthermore, Amari Cooper is probably going to be very popular because he had a big game the other night. And so now it looks like he's very underpriced for expectations. Uh, So if you want to fade Amari Cooper, or rather, if you want to not play him, as we've talked about recently, we should think less about fading players and more about who we are playing. So if you are looking at other players, Amari's not standing out to you, or you're seeing other ways to build, don't think that, oh, well, this guy's popular. He's going to crush me because everybody has him and I don't. He's just as likely to put up 13, 14, 15 points as he is to put up 30. Now, well, he's more likely to put up 13, 14, 15 points than he is to put up 30. If he puts up 30, which he certainly can, then you would get hurt for not having him. If he puts up 30 and you roster him, you'll be happy that you rostered him. So basically, make sure that you're paying attention to the nuance there. Recognize that there are certainly paths to first place this week without a popular Amari. There are certainly paths to a popular Amari hurting people's rosters. There are certainly paths to no Cowboys player being a must-have piece. Zeke and Pollard are going to be splitting touches. Zeke could put up 22, 23 points, but still fall short of what you want at his salary. Amari could put up 13 to 14. Let's say CeeDee Lamb plays. He could put up 19 Schultz could put up 14. All of these guys would be putting up solid scores, but would be falling shy of their price considered expectations. So Cowboys are very much worth considering. My first roster that I built this week, I mentioned this uh, at some point earlier in the week, but the first roster I built earlier in this week had 
five pieces from this game. So I'm certainly on this game, but just kind of laying out some of the nuance to how to look at this game, how to consider these players. But Cowboys are this next highest total team. And the Broncos on the other side of that game are obviously worth considering as well. We will get to that in a little bit. The next team is the Ravens at 28 points. And they're a team that people probably won't look toward as one of the teams that they should consider stacking up in the way that they're going to look toward these other four teams. People are going to be thinking about the Bills. People are going to be thinking about the Cowboys. People are going to be thinking about the next team we'll talk about, which is the Chiefs. People are going to be thinking about Lamar Jackson, but it's less likely that people treat this offense as an offense that is one of the three highest total offenses on the slate. So that's something to keep in mind there. There's some players from this game in the player grid and some deeper thoughts in the player grid on how I'm approaching this game compared to the other games on the slate. Again, keeping in mind that I am basically playing single entry this week. I'm going to be building probably two to three rosters, but one main roster and the others will probably be variations off of that one. Then the next one is the Chiefs. And there's a lot to think about here. The NFL Edge write-up for this game will kind of help you with the nuance of how to look at this game. But we should be thinking about How will the Packers try to win this game? We should remember that the Packers put up a bunch of points against the Saints last year without Devontae Adams. It was a game where I was very surprised at how high the over-under was. I don't remember all the details of it. I was very surprised by how high the over-under was. I was surprised that the over-under kept climbing. I have a buddy who's a Packers fan who bet the over on that game, and then that game ended up going over. Without Devontae Adams, the Packers were able to piece things together. Without Devontae Adams or Marquez Valdez-Scantling or uh, Alan Lazard, they were able to beat the undefeated Cardinals last week. So think about this very intelligent coaching staff and what they are going to try to do to beat the Chiefs. One thing that the Packers are probably going to do is continue to slow down games as they always do. Another thing they are probably going to do is a lot of short, quick passes, a lot of runs, a lot of misdirection. Another thing they are probably going to try to do is limit downfield passing and force the Chiefs to also march the field. So, Do the Chiefs put up 27.75 or more points, right? Do they score four touchdowns as they're basically implied to do? Maybe they do. But also keep in mind that these Chiefs players are priced up for their historically expected production. And so then you have to ask, okay, not only can they put up a good score, but can they soar past that? Something to think about as you consider this game. And then we get down to the fifth game. The fifth team, I should say. So we are just going in descending order from highest Vegas implied team totals out of all 22 teams on the slate. The first one is the Bills. Second one is the Cowboys. Third one is the Ravens. Fourth one is the Chiefs. What do you think the fifth one is? It is the Miami Dolphins against the Houston Texans. And this is where we get to the bottom-up build. So if you are following along In the player grid, if you've already looked at the player grid, already seen what the bottom-up build is, you know that we have four pieces from the Dolphins on this bottom-up build. Is that crazy? Well, let's take a look. We have Tua at quarterback. We have Miles Gaskin at running back. We have Jalen Waddell at wide receiver, and we have Mike Kosecki at tight end. Devontae Parker is out. 
So we have a situation where we have an extremely concentrated distribution of touches. We have a team that likes to pass the ball, just sort of that's how they're built. They don't have a great offensive line. They don't have great between the tackles runners. They went out and got Will Fuller. They tried to build this offense to be a pass attacking offense. Not everything has worked the way that the Bills have wanted it to work this year, but they get this great matchup against the Texans. Now, the expectation should be that the Dolphins run their offense. They should run their offense for the first three quarters of the game. If they have a big lead, maybe they turn more to the ground down the stretch. But we benefit in this spot from Tyrod Taylor starting for the Texans, which increases the chances that the Texans can keep this game competitive, keep this game respectable, keep this game close enough that the Dolphins continue playing the way that they want to play deep into the game. What's interesting about this build with Tua and Gaskin and Waddle and Gasecki is not only that all these players will probably have some level of popularity, right? Tua will probably be 5% to 7% owned. He's not going to go totally overlooked. Gaskin is probably going to be 10%, 12%, maybe even 14 or 15% owned. Waddle will probably be 10, 12% owned. Gasecki will probably, probably be owned in about the same range, maybe even a little bit higher than that. But how many rosters will have all four of these guys together. Let's say that you're in a tournament with 5,000 entries. Well, we take these guys who are 10% owned, right? You're saying they're on about 500 rosters. But how many of those 500 rosters with Gaskin also have Waddle? How many of those 500 rosters with Gaskin also have Gasecki? Now, if we say that Tua is 5% to 7% owned, 250 to 350 rosters, how many of those Tua rosters also have Gaskin? How many of those Tua rosters have Gasecki and Waddle? And then how many of those rosters have all four of them together? Well, we start to get to the point where really only OWS rosters have all four of them together. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is... We're talking bottom-up build. So for the bottom-up build, two things. One, we are working with a 44K salary cap. That is the parameter that we put on the bottom-up build. The other thing is we actually run the bottom-up build contest every week, and it's a 200-entry contest. I will be playing in the Game Changer, which is about 250 entries. I will be playing in the Juke, which is about 300 entries. And I expect those to be the main tournaments I'm focused on. In those tournaments, I would be very comfortable rolling forward with all four of these players on a roster. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But if I were getting up into larger field contests, I would be likelier to move down to three of these players. Now, why I feel comfortable going with four of these players? In smaller field tournaments, guaranteed points are so important. We don't want to play safer in smaller field tournaments. But we do want to focus more on guaranteed points. How do we not play safer but still focus more on guaranteed points? This is how we do it. By finding spots where we can cover multiple roster spots at once, treating that salary as a block of salary spent, and seeing what salary multiplier we can get out of that block of salary spent. Okay, but JM... You're spending 22K on four players. You need about 88 points from them. Can these guys really put up 88 points? Well, let's look at that. Across their last three games, Tua, Gaskin, Waddle, Gasecki. In two of those three games, 
those four players have combined for about 80 points. Those games were against Jacksonville and Atlanta. Now we get a spot against the Texans. What's interesting is that they've combined for about 80 points with the the skill position players, Gaskin, Waddle, Kaseki, only combining for four total touchdowns. So I talked at the front end of the week, I believe it was in the Angles email, about the thought of the Dolphins being priced for priced as a team. Maybe it was in Inner Circle that I talked about this, but the Dolphins are priced as a team for being a team that typically scores three or fewer touchdowns. This week, now their Vegas implied team total is 26 points, but their likelihood of scoring four touchdowns is much higher than it typically is. And it wouldn't be a total shock if they got up to five touchdowns as a team. So Gaskin, Waddle, Gasecki, a team that passes the ball a lot in this great matchup, these guys can go for 80 plus points. We've seen it happen two of their last three games together in similarly soft matchups. But in both of those, they did it with these guys only scoring two touchdowns in one of those games, two touchdowns in another in another of those games. What happens if these guys score three touchdowns? Well, now you're sitting at basically the 88 points that you need from this block combined. And that's just something that they've already done in two of their last three games. There's no reason why they couldn't go for a bigger game than that. Now, obviously, they could go for a smaller game than that. And obviously, the chances of them going 5x their combined salary are lower than than like some other things that you could do. But that's why in smaller field tournaments, we're comfortable with this type of setup. We're comfortable saying, I don't need these guys to be able to go for 5x their combined salary. I'm trying to beat 200 entries. If I can get 4x their combined salary from four roster spots, from over 20K of my salary, now I have four roster spots covered. And I'm just trying, it's like when we talk about teams that have an elite shutdown corner and they're able to play 10 on 10 football while taking away the opponent's best wide receiver, right? If you're the Rams, you deploy Jalen Ramsey to follow an opponent's elite alpha number one wide receiver. Well, what happens if Ramsey shuts that guy down? Now you're playing 10 on 10 football. Ramsey's being taken out of the game as well, right? Because he's just following this guy around. But let's say that that guy is Devontae Adams. Well, now you're forcing the Packers to beat you 10 on 10 without Devontae Adams. So take that similar type of thinking. You're basically saying, look, I'm now playing a five roster spot tournament where I just need to get my points from five roster spots. I'm already getting 4X my salary from four of my roster spots from 22K of my salary cap. And now I just have to maximize this other 28K. I have to find four to five X salary from this other 28K. It's one of the things that Matthew Petrich talked about in that 250K win this last week was he had the stack that we talked about last week quite a bit, which was Carson Wentz, Jonathan Taylor, and Michael Pittman with A.J. Brown as the bring back. Similar to what we're talking about with the Dolphins, most people don't think to put that running back on the roster as well, along with the quarterback, the pass catchers. But what we're saying is we're not betting on the direct correlation of, oh, hopefully Tua throws the touchdown passes. We're just saying, hopefully this team scores a bunch of touchdowns and we get as many of those touchdowns as possible. And so what Matthew said about that roster when we talked about this on Tuesday night was basically he said, 
I had, I, I knew that these guys get to hundred points. They cost about 25 K in salary and I knew that they could get to hundred points. So there's my four X covered. And now I can worry about the other roster spots. So if you're getting into larger and larger field play, you want to narrow down this pool a little bit more and think about going with just three of these guys, unless you want to bet on a scenario and say, Hey, maybe the Dolphins score five touchdowns here. Maybe they score six touchdowns here. Then this full onslaught in a concentrated offense actually still works. But if they score four touchdowns, you're probably not winning a large field tournament playing all four of these guys together. But then you start saying, okay, now let me take on a little bit more guesswork. Now let me embrace a little bit more uncertainty. Now let me guess a little bit more. Let me take Tua and Gaskin and Gasecki, or Tua and Waddle and Gasecki, or Tua and Gaskin and Waddle. Let me hope that I get the guys who the touchdowns end up being concentrated on, and maybe the guy who puts up a solid game, the, the 12 points, the 14 points, the 15 points, that guy I leave Maybe that's the guy I leave off and I end up getting the right guys onto this roster together. But if you're in smaller field play, which we're talking about pretty specifically with the bottom up build, if you're in smaller field play, getting just all four of these guys, getting the guaranteed points is a really sharp way to go, especially when we understand that these guys have gone for like basically 3.65x their combined salary two of the last three weeks and could easily just one extra touchdown going to one of these guys or, you know, an extra hundred yard bonus on one of these guys and a a couple extra catches, just a couple extra things breaking your way. You end up getting up to 86 points, 88 points, 92 points, 93 points from these four players combined. So Tua, Miles Gaskin, Jalen Waddell, and Mike Gusecki is the starting point, the foundation for this roster from the team that has the fifth highest Vegas implied team total on the slate and that most of our competition will not be treating as such. As I said, all of these guys will have some level of popularity, but they won't be popular the way that they should be for guys who are underpriced for the team's scoring expectations, underpriced for the team's scoring expectations in a concentrated offense, and again, while some people will be playing one-offs from this game and maybe some Tua plus Waddle, Tua plus Gusecki stacks, there aren't that many people who are going to have all four of these guys together. It is going to be one of the foundation thoughts for my main roster this week. I, I'll say it like that because I don't yet know exactly what the foundation of my main roster will be. Some other things I considered for this roster, Tyrod Taylor instead of Tua, uh, Josh Allen was actually how I started this roster, but because of what I wanted to do at running back, I ended up doing the the Tua build instead. We'll get to running back in a minute. Uh, Josh Allen obviously is a super sharp way to go and moves you off of this type of build. But you can also take something like Josh Allen plus two of these Dolphins pieces, still recognizing that the Dolphins are expected to put up points. The Dolphins, it's like this. Where can you find certainty? Well, in spots where you're not having to hope that the offensive production shakes out the way that you need it to shake out. So when you have a spot where a team is highly likely to put up yards and touchdowns, a spot where an offense doesn't have that much resistance against them and things are concentrated, well, that's a pretty good setup for certainty. So Josh Allen probably isn't going to have a hard time against the Jaguars this week. You feel good putting him onto your roster. The Dolphins are probably going to score more points than they typically score this week against Houston, and we know where the volume's going. That's a lot of certainty that we're pulling onto our roster. Uh, The other player I actually considered at quarterback was Jordan Love. 
Uh, I don't even have Jordan Love in the player grid, and yet he's still going to be kept in the back of my mind. So the pro case for playing Jordan Love is he's probably going to be under 3% owned, maybe under 4% owned, but not that many rosters are going to have him. He's 4,400, and the assumption is that What's the narrative around Jordan Love? That this is a wasted pick by the Packers, that they reached for him without a plan in place. They should have taken a, uh, you know, this is a team that should be in win-now mode. They should have taken a, a piece that could have helped them on their way to a Super Bowl instead of taking a backup quarterback that some people felt was a reach behind a guy who was still in MVP form, right? That's the narrative around Jordan Love. No preseason last year. He was hurt throughout most of preseason this year. He was the third string quarterback on the Packers last year. Reports have him throwing wobbly passes in practice and training camp still being inaccurate. But we also know that LaFleur is going to design the offense around what he knows this quarterback can do best. It should not surprise any of us if one of the stories of week nine, when everything's said and done, is this big game that Jordan Love had. And what I mean by that is not that I think Jordan Love is a great quarterback. What I mean by that is that we don't know. So if everyone is overrating their certainty about this guy, and this guy is playing the Chiefs, which A, means this is a defense people have been trying to pick on all year, and B, means this is a game where we should expect the Packers to have to put up points in order to win. Well, if everyone's overrating their certainty that this guy is not good, one of the ways to gain an edge is to embrace that uncertainty and say, what if Jordan Love comes out and lights up this matchup? So that's the pro in this spot. The con is that this team plays slow, and Aaron Rodgers is averaging 20.1 DraftKings points per game. So if Jordan Love gets up to 20 DraftKings points at 4.4K in salary, that's great. That's that's excellent from a salary multiplier standpoint. But where else are you spending that salary, right? Like there aren't a bunch of super high-priced guys this week that you're like, well, I've got to get in Devontae Adams, right? Because Devontae Adams doesn't have Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you're not like, oh, I've got to get in Christian McCaffrey because Christian McCaffrey's not expected to play, or if he's playing, he's only he's expected to only play a limited role. There is no Derrick Henry on this slate. There's not a bunch of guys who you have a high level of certainty that you're paying up to get guaranteed points with upside for 40 to 45 points. So if you're saving that salary to get down to Jordan Love, it can't just be because you're getting 20 points. Optimally, you want to be able to get 23 points, 24 points, 26 points. So again, he can get there, but there's also the concern in my mind, if I'm talking as a single entry player, of saying, what are his chances of getting there when Aaron Rodgers himself is averaging 20.1 DraftKings points per game? What is going to change that Jordan Love is going to come out and be the guy who puts up 26 points and kind of blows away the slate at 4,400? So Jordan Love, very much in the mix for me, but not quite strong enough on paper to be in the player grid, yet still in the back of my mind for me. Uh, again, not on the bottom-up build, but another piece that I considered here. So we have Tua, we have Gaskin, we have Waddle, we have Gasecki. The next thing I want to talk about is the bring back on this roster. So Tyrod Taylor is going to be under center for the Texans. We've only seen him play six quarters, and he obviously exceeded expectations in those six quarters. That doesn't mean that that's going to continue to be the case the rest of the season, but he's obviously a much better quarterback than Davis Mills, who was probably 
the worst quarterback in the NFL to this point in the season. Tyrod Taylor has always been a very competent quarterback. If I remember correctly, he even had a Pro Bowl season for whatever that means or matters back when he was with the Bills. This is not a bad quarterback. This is one of the top, quote, backups in the NFL and kind of like the Ryan Fitzpatrick backup tag. The main reason that Tyrod is a backup is because he's not a quarterback at this point. At this point, people know he's not a quarterback who is going to go out and win them a Super Bowl. And so they'd rather have a young quarterback that they're trying to develop than a quarterback like Tyrod Taylor, who's just kind of a placeholder. With that said, Tyrod Taylor is a better quarterback than a lot of these young quarterbacks who are developing. So Tyrod Taylor stepping in is a bonus for Everybody on this Texans offense is the bonus for this game environment. And when I say everybody on this Texans offense or everybody in this Texans passing attack, that means everybody. So one of the things that has stood out to me to this point in the week, and this is not why I'm on this play, this should be made clear, but it is certainly a bonus, is in looking at ownership projections, Brandon Cooks is kind of coming in across the industry as one of the top five, six, seven, eight wide receivers on the slate. Nico Collins is coming in as one of the lowest owned wide receivers on the slate. So one of the things we talk about with DFS theory, we dove really deep into this in the first one or two inner circle segments this year, but it's this idea of this strategy idea of rather than betting on what you think will happen, instead leverage the overconfidence of the field and say, okay, everybody's pulling this Brandon Cook's lever. What is the lever that would cause Brandon Cooks to fail? What if Nico Collins has a big game? We haven't really seen what Tyrod Taylor plus Nico Collins means. Nico Collins has been seeing four or five, six targets while he's been on the field these last few games from Davis Mills. But let's say that the tight that the Texans put together more sustained drives this week. Let's say that there's a little bit of extra passing volume to go around. Let's say that the Dolphins, who have good pieces in the secondary and play a lot of man coverage, let's say that they prioritize trying to take away Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks, who furthermore is a player, for whatever it's worth, that Brian Flores used to coach against every day when he was with the Patriots. Let's say that the Dolphins come out and say, all right, let's take away Brandon Cooks. Well, if that ends up being the case, it shouldn't surprise us if Brandon Cooks, who's really only been seeing about seven targets per game, it shouldn't surprise us if Brandon Cooks sees seven targets and Nico Collins goes from five, six targets up to seven or eight targets. Nico Collins has a gain of 18 plus yards in four consecutive games. Nico Collins can bust off big gains and he fits really well into this full-on Dolphins onslaught build because you're basically saying, hey, look, the Dolphins are going to score a lot of points. So then that would force the Texans to be passing deep into the game, which opens up opportunities for Nico Collins to get up to those six, seven, eight targets that can make him extremely valuable at his super cheap price tag. Furthermore, again, if Nico Collins is having a big game, he is directly taking away points from those Brandon Cooks rosters. So rather than just saying, oh, how, oh, look, Brandon Cooks is popular. Hopefully he disappoints or Brandon Cooks is popular. Let's account for that by putting him on our roster. Instead, we say Brandon Cooks is popular, but it's not that much more likely that he has a big game than it is that Nico Collins has a big game. Certainly not like, let's say Brandon Cooks is 
five times more popular than Nico Collins? Is it five times more likely that Brandon Cooks produces a better point per dollar day than Nico Collins? Absolutely not. And so it's an interesting spot to be able to say, not only do we have this full-on Dolphins onslaught that offsets the ownership of individual players by piecing them together in a way that other people won't be piecing them, piecing them together, but then we bring it back with a player in Nico Collins who is low-owned individually and basically gives us in, immensely low ownership in this Dolphins-Texans stack and the way that we've built it, the way we've wrapped it all together. So that is the next piece on this bottom-up build. We have Tua, we have Gaskin, we have Waddle, we have Gasecki, we have Nico Collins. The next piece is Albert Okwebunum from the Broncos. So it is looking like Noah Fant is not going to play this week. And Albert O, as we will call him moving forward, Albert O, if you haven't watched him yet, he has legitimate, I'll say legitimate outside shot upside at being a future superstar tight end. He's big, he's strong, he has good hands, he moves well, and when he's had opportunities in the past, he's done really well. He filled in for Fant last year against Kansas City, had seven catches on seven targets for 60 yards. This year, he's been on the field a decent amount, has a three catch for 16 yards and a touchdown day, four catches for 24 yards, three catches for 34 yards. And with Fant out, that vacates a lot of targets. In fact, let's look at Fant's targets. Only four looks last week, but seven the week before that, 11 the week before that, four the week before that, 10 the week before that. First two weeks of the season, he had six targets, eight targets. So a lot of these games where Fant is seeing seven, eight, 10, 11 targets in a spot against Dallas where the Cowboys are 10-point favorites, it is likely that the Broncos are going to have to pass as this game moves along. And this is a Broncos team, as, as was explored in the NFL Edge, that has been very willing to go pass heavy when they've had to. Add to that the likelihood of Trayvon Diggs following Cortland Sutton around on the perimeter, and we start to really narrow down the target distribution here. We elevate the chances of Albert O, who is only 2,600, getting seven, eight targets in this spot against a defense that can be beat by tight ends. So Albert O at 2,600 not only unlocks a lot on this slate, but also gives us legitimate and genuine upside. Something like five, six, seven catches for 50, 60, 70 yards is very much in the mix. It's also worth paying attention to the types of routes that different tight ends run. Travis Kelsey is going to run routes 12 to 15 yards downfield. Evan Ingram, Jonu Smith, part of the reason that they don't get big stat lines is because they're running routes two yards, three yards, four yards downfield. Now, Jonu Smith, he's running those routes because he has after catch upside and the Patriots and in the past, the Titans are trying to get him short passes with room to run. Theoretically, that's the idea behind Evan Ingram as well, except that he has been sapped of a lot of his explosiveness at this point and getting him these short targets is just kind of like getting him short targets. Albert O, Noah Fant, these guys are getting the types of targets where they can pick up 
10 yards per reception. In fact, just last week against Washington, Albert O had three catches for 34 yards. He had a 19-yard reception in there. Against Baltimore, he had one catch for 11 yards. Uh, against Jacksonville, four catches for 24 yards, but he had a 14-yard catch in there. That game against Kansas City that we already talked about was seven catches for 60 yards. He had a game last year with two catches for 45 yards. So recognizing that this is the guy who isn't just likely to get four catches for 15 yards, 17 yards, and that's it, right? One of these guys who you play the cheap tight end, he gets you six or seven points. You're not getting negative points and you feel pretty good. This is a guy who can actually go for 12, 13 points before a potential touchdown. And if he adds in the touchdown, we have legitimate 20 point upside on this guy. Not going to go overlooked, but we're already working in this situation, talking about DFS strategy here, we're already working with a roster here that is extremely unique. We already can lay out the case, right? Like let's say Nico Collins is 3% owned. So in the example we've been using of a 5,000 entry tournament, well, Nico Collins is only on 150 of those rosters. How many of those Nico Collins rosters also have Miles Gaskin? How many of those Nico Collins rosters also have Tua plus one of his pass catchers? Let alone how many of those Nico Collins rosters have all four of those Dolphins pieces together. We're probably the only roster in that 5,000 entry tournament that has that setup. So if that setup hits, which it would have to hit for us to get to first place anyway, right? For us to get enough points for first place. If that setup hits, we're now doing something totally different from the field. We don't have to worry that much about ownership across the rest of this roster. Albert O is probably going to be decently popular, but there's no reason to shy away from him just because of that. Tight end is a hard position to fill. We saw it with Dan Arnold last week. Look, if you identify the guy, you think he can put up the same number of points. I said it all week last week. There's no reason to think that Dan Arnold's Usage and production can't be in the same range as all the guys who are priced in the 4K price range, 4K to 4.9K. And that was exactly what we ended up seeing with Arnold last week. And the same is the case for Albert O this week. If we had known that this was going to be his role this week, it would have been justifiable for him to be priced at 4,200, 4,400. So at 2,600, he's a screaming bargain. Doesn't mean he's guaranteed to hit, but it means that it's super sharp to play him if you like him this week. Furthermore, as we talked about, we expect this Broncos team to have to be passing the ball. We expect relatively concentrated distribution of targets because Fant is out. So the two tight end sets, really those lead tight end targets are going to be going to Albert O. We'll be seeing probably a little bit more 11 personnel, three wide receiver sets, which gets Judy onto the field higher than the 70% snap rate. Maybe he's on the field for 75%, 80%, 85%. Also keep in mind that Judy's ankle was swelling up toward the end of last week, right? He'd been out for since week one, and he came back First game action back, his ankle was swelling up down the stretch of that game. That shouldn't be an issue this week as his body's getting more and more up to speed. So with Trayvon Diggs likely to be following around Cortland Sutton. Now, keep in mind, Cortland Sutton Sutton can still hit. Uh, If you're playing multiple rosters, if you're playing large field play, or if you just like Sutton more than Judy, he's very much in the mix as well. Where I'm going to be focusing is saying what is likeliest to happen here 
I already feel like I'm building very differently from the field. And so I can just think what's likeliest to happen. What's likeliest to happen is that the Broncos end up throwing 35 to 38, maybe even 40 passes this week. And a large chunk of those passes are going to go to Albert O and Judy. It wouldn't be honestly a fair, just like reasonable projection for combined targets for these two guys is about 15. One of them gets seven eight, the other of them gets seven, eight, or one of them gets six, the other of them gets nine. It also wouldn't be surprising if Albert O comes out and sees eight or nine targets of his own. And if Judy comes out and sees double digit targets, would that totally shock you? Now that's not the 50th percentile outcome for this spot, but if we played out this game a hundred times, there would probably be a good 20 to 25 times in which these guys would combine for 18 targets. 19 targets. And so getting this narrow distribution where we already know, well, I guess we don't know, right? But we're saying it's a high confidence bet that the Cowboys will be, will be playing with a lead. If we want to take that high confidence bet, that means it's a high confidence bet that the Broncos will be passing. And if the Broncos are passing, we have a high confidence bet that the targets are focusing by and large on these two Guys, So getting these two guys onto a roster together, once again, gives us a very unique setup. It also gives us $7,600 in salary spent for what we're expecting to be an easy double-digit targets. Now, we're taking up two roster spots, but if we think of just standard salary spent and you think about a $7,600 wide receiver... Not all of those 7,600 wide receivers are guaranteed double-digit targets. Stefan Diggs is not guaranteed double-digit targets. Jamar Chase has double-digit targets in only two games this season. Let alone, we're saying our probably our median projection here is about 14, 15, 16 targets for these two guys combined. So think about spending 7,600 in salary and getting 14, 15, 16 targets as your likeliest outcome with upside for 19 targets. 18 targets, right? So from a salary spent standpoint, we get a lot covered by putting these two guys on a roster together and we offset the higher ownership of Albert O. And lastly, very much worth talking about here, we have two tight ends on this roster. So we talk about the sort of macro points that we should be paying attention to or that the field pays heavy attention to, right? Home favorite running backs, teams with high Vegas implied totals, games with high over-unders. These are data points that if Levitan or Raybon sat down in the offseason and done a lengthy study about first place rosters in tournaments, what, what works the best in cash games, and so on and so forth, they find that in a macro sense, rostering home favorite running backs is better than rostering other types of running backs. They find that in a macro sense, focusing on game environments with a high over-under or teams with a high implied team total gives you your best shot over time. Playing rosters that don't have two tight ends on them give you your best shot over time. But in the micro, we can always find little places that break those rules. So this is an interesting one this week in that Mike Gusecki really isn't a tight end. He is listed at tight end, but he runs the extraordinary majority of his routes from the slot. He runs the extraordinary majority of his routes as a wide receiver. Furthermore, Albert O at 2,600 gets you a higher floor and ceiling than really any other player 
priced under 4K, in my opinion. So rather than taking a 4K wide receiver or a another $3,600 wide receiver or a $4,400 running back, we get to take the $2,600 tight end, the guy who we already said, if we'd known this role and we'd seen enough of Albert O, right, to feel more firmly established in what he can do, he would be justifiably priced at like 4,200, 4,400, whatever it might be. So we're getting him at 2,600 and then getting Gasecki, who's listed as a tight end, but is actually a wide receiver in this offense. Gasecki, who has wide receiver upside. Gasecki, and, that, and that's kind of the question you want to ask yourself. The reason why we don't play two tight ends more often than not is because the actual raw point upside isn't there. I won't go too deep into this right now, but I've talked about this from time to time that the main thing about the tight end position is just getting separator scores from other tight ends, right? If all the other tight ends score eight points and you can get the guy who scores 15, well, you're in much better shape than everybody else. And so you're typically willing to spend a little bit more for that 15 or 17 point score. Or in the case of Kelsey, if Kelsey puts up 22 points, but all the other tight ends, you know, put up 14 points or fewer, well, 22 points really isn't what you would love for that amount of salary spent. What you're typically spending on Kelsey, you would love to be able to get 30 plus points, 26, 27, 28 plus points at minimum. But with Kelsey, a lot of times, if he puts up 22 or 23, that's good enough because he's such a separator from all the other tight ends. So when we think about tight end, we think about it through that lens. The fact that the ceiling games for these guys is lower than the ceiling games for other positions. But last year, week two against Buffalo, Gasecki had eight catches for 130 yards and a touchdown. That was 30 DraftKings points. By the way, his long reception in that game was only 27 yards. So it's not as if he had one long play that sort of tilted his box score in a particular direction. This was just consistent production throughout that game. Only one touchdown as well. He had another game with nine catches for 88 yards and a touchdown. That was week 13 last year against Cincinnati. That was 23.8 points. He had another game with five catches for 65 yards and two touchdowns. That was against Kansas City. That was 23.5 points. He had another game with 91 receiving yards last year. And this year already in just two of the last three weeks, both of those games in which this four-player combo combined for 80-plus points, in two, two of the last three games, uh, Gasecki has put up eight catches for 115 yards, no scores, and he still put up 22.5 DraftKings points, seven catches for 85 yards, and a touchdown, which is 21.5 DraftKings points. So when you talk about a guy who's priced under 5K, there aren't that many wide receivers. I'll put it like this. As I say often, DraftKings pricing algorithm generally tries to get players in a range where they will hit 4X their salary multiplier roughly once every four games. Well, Gasecki has gotten there in six of his last 22 games, basically like 18 points or more, which is basically 4x his salary or more. So in other words, slightly better than once every four games. And typically, 
it's hard to find tight ends who actually fit that same rule as players at other positions do. And as we've talked about, uh, we will hit on it in the Oracle as well. And we talked about it in the, uh, we'll hit on it more deeply in the Oracle. And we talked about it in the angles email, but even a lot of these high priced running backs, most of them are not coming anywhere close to that once every four weeks hitting four X their salary multiplier mark. And so finding a guy like Gusecki, who's actually doing that, we can kind of throw away the positional designation and we know, again, we're getting a lot of decently popular plays on this roster. But as we've talked about, how many people are going to have these four Dolphins pieces together? How many people are going to have Nico Collins on that roster? How many people are going to have Albert O and Jerry Judy? And how many people are going to have Albert O and Gusecki? Both of whom, in fact, it wouldn't be surprising if these end up being the two most popular tight end plays on the slate. I'm, I do all my stuff in a bubble for the most part, so I don't know what everybody else is talking about, but it wouldn't be that surprising to me if people start talking up Gusecki and Albert O enough that they become the two most popular individual tight ends on the slate. And yet, how many people are going to play these two guys on a roster together? So that gives us Tua, Gaskin, Waddle, Gasecki, Nico, Judy, Albert O, leaving us with two roster spots remaining. At running back, we are going to go with Austin Eckler. Austin Eckler is really the only high-priced running back who has been putting up 20 points with regularity and getting up to that 30-point mark frequently enough to justify his price tag. So for me, some of these other running backs could hit. Zeke could hit. Chubb could hit. Uh, I honestly, I don't mind Alvin Kamara. I just would prefer him getting a much larger, larger pass game role. And that's hard for him to do on an offense that wants to not pass the ball. Uh, so Kamara will kind of put him in a different bucket, different conversation, just because it's the way that I'm playing this week that I'm not on him. But these other guys, Mixon is another one. All of these guys could go for a bigger score than Eckler. But if we played out this slate a hundred times, Eckler would have the most total points out of all these guys. And he would hit the 20 plus point mark more often than any, any of these other guys. And he would hit the 30 point mark more often than in any of these other guys. And we can say that with a high level of confidence because we have a pretty long track record going back to the start of last season of these other guys not justifying their price tags nearly as frequently as the field thinks that they are. And so I am going to take the certainty edge on this roster and put Eckler on it and call it a day. In fact, I started this roster with Austin Eckler with Josh Allen. That was my starting point. And then it was like, let me see if I can build this way. Started realizing that I was going to make too many sacrifices to get those two guys on together. Really liked some of these cheap quarterbacks and some of the options available there. So my move was to pivot from Josh Allen down to Tua and leave Austin Eckler on this roster. And that gives us a roster before defense of Tua Eckler, Gaskin, Judy, Nico, Waddle, Gusecki, Albert O. And then at defense, we have the Panthers, mostly because they fit at 2,600. But also there are two cheap defenses that I like this week, the Chiefs and the Panthers. There are two expensive defenses I like this week in the Patriots and the Bills. I break these down in the player grid, so I will not belabor the point here. But the Panthers at 2,600 help us to round out this roster with a defense that should be able to get five, six, seven points and obviously has upside for more. With that, we have 43.8K in salary spent. 
we stay under the 44K salary cap and have an extremely unique roster, one that has a decent number of relatively popular plays, popular because they're sharp plays, but put together in a way that's going to be very different from what the field would have here, giving us a clear shot not only at well, 4x salary multiplier. I won't say 200 points because we're not spending 50k, but uh, 4x salary multiplier across the board on this roster and a clear shot at a first place finish because of how different and unique this roster is compared to what everybody else with a 44k salary cap would likely be doing. With that, we are going to call it a day on the Week 9 Angles podcast. Thank you, as always, for hanging out. I will see you on the site this weekend, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. 